to Olympic Size, the unofficial, unlicensed, unaffiliated with the IOC True History of the Olympics. I'm your host, Bridget Natali, and with me as ever is my co-host, uh, Sarah. Sarah and uh, recurring guest, Frank. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always forget that you're a guest and I have to go first. <laughs> That's just what he decided for himself. I know. I know. He's like, it's like when you when you negotiate when you're like the highest paid actor and you negotiate the and with <laughs> credit at the end where it's like oh also appearing and then you Featuring. turn around and smile yes. and you're like I'm getting paid more than these other people. I'm getting paid twice as much as you. I figured. That's just that. That's just you know how we do things. You guys haven't seen any any contracts that I've made. So. <laughs> This is, this is a high-budget operation. All right, so today we are... We, we mentioned this... I can't remember. I think it was last... Uh, what episode did we talk about What this? year is it? I think it may have been the first half of the 1900 Olympics episode where we talked about the intercalated games. And, I Frank, you asked me if we were going to do a whole episode about them, and it turns out that Bill Mallon wrote a book about them, so I was able to get enough information Despite not being an Olympics, they are worthy enough to have a book of their Olympus, Olympic-ish, Olympish. Olympus games. Yeah, let me... Wait, I'm going to grab the other one I have. It's the series Ooh, of books um, that they wrote about the early Olympics. So this is the one for the next time, the 1908 games, which has more. The 1906 games isn't as long. But it was the 1906 Olympic Games results for all competitors and all events with commentary by Bill Mallon is where we got most of our information because there isn't a whole lot of information about this. The IOC does not formally recognize the 1906 intercalated games. Um, there's no information on the Olympics website. They don't, none of the records. It never happened. Yeah, but I mean, there are, like, according to the IOC, it didn't count. So, so there are two things we can hope for based on that. One, that the IOC wasn't running and ruining a lot of this stuff. Um, and two, <laughs> that they brought back Flugelendorfen. Wild flogging. I like Flugelendorfen. So anyway. The endorphins you get from Flugeling. <laughs> yes. We're all familiar. But yeah, um, uh, well, the, the IOC ran it. Like, at the time, oh, okay. they all so thought it was official. one off the list. I they, still have half my dream. Yeah. They all thought it was official at the time. Um... And the, so, you know, if you recall, after the 1896 games, the Greeks did a really good job and everybody liked it and they wanted to keep them in Athens. And de Cupertin was like, mm, no. And everybody else who got to have a say in it was like, no. So uh, they had a compromise with the Greeks where they said that, you know, on every two, like, they'd have a... Games in Athens every four years that were set, like, two off from the Olympics. So you'd have them in 1900, like, the Olympics in 1900, intercalated games in 1902. Olympics in 1904, hmm. intercalated games 1906. This is the only time it actually happened was 1906. Because uh, Greece was at war before that <laughs> and after that. And then World War One, and then, like, they had no money. And it, you know, just kind of faded away, this whole, like goal to have these intercalated games in Athens every four years. Uh, but it's, they still were really significant in your, in Olympic history because 1900 was a disaster. 1904 was worse. <laughs> and, and when they got back to Athens, they kind of reset everything 
And it didn't quite take in 1908, but there's reasons for that, and we'll get to that next time. So I think this one's only going to be one episode, because it's the same as 1896, where everything kind of went pretty well. There's some interesting stories, but there's no, you know, inhumane disasters like the Anthropology Days or the Marathon in St. Louis. <laughs> like, mm. I, I like the idea that a well-run sporting event is not sufficient to sustain a podcast about the history of that sporting event well no i mean it, we'll still have an episode about it but it won't take two or three hours to explain all Challenge the accepted. weird crap that happened <laughs> so anyway so um here we go uh the greeks have been competing. i'm like reading over my notes where i just kind of everything i just said um but um every four years sorry i'm skimming through uh de Couberton, um he was against the whole intercalated games for a lot of reasons, not least of which because he thought the, the Olympics would be too often. He wanted them every four years. He thought that made them special. Well, I believe you also mentioned that Olympiad is a period of time. So had they... Is that... Yeah, yeah. Uh, an Olympiad's a four-year period of time. And they had already begun using that nomenclature. So yeah. to have the games on some different cadence than four years would have been a little weird at that point. Yeah, and but that's what intercalated means. Mm. So... Um, so when we have a leap year and we have an extra day, it's an intercalated day. February 29th is an intercalated day. When uh, we have daylight savings time and we add an hour, th that 25th hour in the day is an intercalated hour. That's what that means when you add a period of time to a calendar. So um, that's why they called these games the intercalated games. And I'm going to call them intercalated this whole time just to go along with the IOC saying they're not officially Olympics. But, you know, at the time they all called them Olympics. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, yeah, and then, like, there's some stuff about, so, Greece was, this is, like, so confusing, and what ultimate, like, part of what ultimately led to World War One. but Greece had been part of the Ottoman Empire, which was, like, when Turkey took over a lot of southern and eastern Europe, and, um, uh, Greece was one of the, I think, one of the first nations to kind of break away from that, and then, like, later you get, like, Bulgaria, and whatever Yugoslavia that area was going by at the time they changed their names a lot uh, no no wait I think maybe they were part of Austro-Hungarian anyway there were a lot this is not my area of expertise please consult another history podcast <laughs> yeah, if you like, would like to know about the lead up to World War One and the yeah, breakdown of the Ottoman Empire the, the, the history of the Balkans in the first half of the 20th century is a little bit beyond the scope of what we're doing but it was part of why this was uh, complicated and we'll get into also uh, how that affected what teams were there um, and why there was only the one intercalated games because Greece and Turkey kept going to war with each other. Um, but, um, so, uh, the eight, uh, so I'm just kind of skimming to find stuff in my notes that I haven't just said. The 1906 uh the 1896 Athens Olympics were much more international than the second two in 1900 and 1904. We talked about that, how, like, in Paris it was mostly French people, and in 1904 it was mostly Americans, because it was such a pain in the butt to get to. Um, 1906 was more international than those. Like, kind of, like, went back. And part of the reason why, because so few athletes went to St. Louis that it wasn't a huge pain in the butt to get to a different Olympic Games two years later. That was another thing they found, like, that made it difficult to hold, like, the sun. These are essentially Summer Olympics every two years, mm -hmm. is that it was difficult for these athletes to make the time to go. It's a several, is it week or month long trip to get 
from Europe to the Americas at this point? Like, how much time do you have to block off to reasonably move a sports team from one side of the world to another circa? Oh, jeez. Like, I don't 90. know. It, it, I mean, it really depends on where you are. Like, they were talking about the Australians. took them, what, a good six weeks at least? Yeah. Uh, they were all traveling by steamship or train or, like, there are these some of these jerk-offs in a yacht. Like, <laughs> that was the British fencing team. They were all yeah. noblemen. Um, but, yeah. Um, so... Uh, but there were a couple things that they did, and there were a couple things they did in uh, 1906 for the first time. They had national teams. This is the first time we had national teams, and they've done that every time since. So the Olympics, as such, stole that idea from a non-Olympic game. <laughs> and you think that they wouldn't want to write their own history that way. <laughs> but, but yeah, so um, there wasn't, you know, like that guy, the... the his name escapes me at the moment, but the Cuban guy who, like, just kind of went to St. Louis and ran in the marathon. You remember what I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. He, uh, there were no, no, nobody like that. Um, they were all officially, this country has an officially Olympic committee, and they put together our official Olympic team, and they are going to the Olympics. And we have opening ceremonies where they all walk in, do the parade of nations that we do now. They had closing ceremonies, um where they all kind of went in together. It was like 1906 is the first time those traditions started. And the first Olympic village where they had accommodations for all the athletes in a specific place. Um, so what the IOC should have done is made this an official Olympics and kind of back, like retroactively pushed the previous set of games out. Yeah. This, yeah. Nineteen just, just change all the dates. No one's going to, you know, yeah, 19, off. 1900 and 1904. <laughs> Not so Just, much. Um, well, yeah. Okay. And so so since we have these national teams, that should make counting which countries participated easier, right? The way that you phrase that as a question makes me want to say yes. No. <laughs> because there is no IOC official record of the unarticulated games, uh, because the IOC does not recognize right. them as Olympic games. We have what Wikipedia says, which is based mostly based on what Bill Mallon said, um, although it's not completely the same, and there is no official governing body to be like, no, this is what happened. And so what we have are 854 athletes, uh, 848 were men and six were women, from 20 countries, which I'll just read because there's only 20 of them. Australia... Austria, Belgium, Bohemia, which I think is around the Czech Republic-ish, um, Canada, Denmark, Egypt, Finland, France, Germany, Great Britain, Greece, Hungary, Italy, Netherlands, Norway, Turkey, Sweden, and the United States. And then we have some asterisks. <laughs> Australia and Canada were still part of Great Britain at the time and not sovereign nations. However, they ha both had fully independent governments at the time, and they ha and so they had their own National Olympic Committees. Also, apparently, Australia could have been combined with New Zealand under the name Australasia, which is what they ended up doing in 1908 and 1912. Uh, but in 1906, all four athletes that showed up from that area of the globe were from Australia, so they just were Australian. <laughs> um, Finland was officially part of Russia at the time. They sent four athletes. No Russian athletes competed, so we count those athletes as Finnish. There were four Russian athletes entered, three from St. Petersburg and one from Ukraine, but only one of them 
actually competed. His name was Bahumil Hanzatko, and he was on the Bohemian gymnastics team. So there was no nobody from the Russian Olympic Committee right. sent a Russian national team in 1906. They did in 1908, though, so we'll talk about that then. Um, speaking of Bohemia and adding Austro-Hungary, we are still dealing with the slow and violent dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Bohemia at the time was composed of Moravia and Silesia, I say it. Um, and most of all this, most of all of this is what is now Czechia. It still sounds so fake. Yeah, I'm gonna we keep. We had uh, enough of an argument about this on the previous episode. <laughs> we had now... so much of an argument about this that I edited it out. Oh, <laughs> it was less of an argument, and it was more just me being right and you being slow to realize that I was right. And like a long silent we're, period of us googling things to prove it again. we're doing it again no i'm not doing it can't again. can't we just be a family it's czechia austro-hungary opposed bohemia's inclusion at all of the olympic games but de Cooperton supported them and so they got in this was further complicated by the fact that austrian prince alexander solms Braunfels was elected to the ioc in 1905 and promptly set about trying to get dr guth the lone czech member of the ioc kicked out this problem wouldn't come to a head until the 1908 games in London, and considering de Coubertin's wholehearted support of Bohemia competing as a sovereign nation, they get to be included on their own. And is the Bohemia in team, if they had not gotten approved, then we would have had Russia in the list? No, it, Bohemia was part of Austro-Hungarian Empire. Okay, I, You were mixing it up with Finland, I think. I thought I heard you say that there was someone from St. Petersburg who competed in on the Bohemian gymnastics Yes, team. yes. So, but... Ah, uh, maybe we should... So the national teams are now established, but they do not determine which team you will compete on? Well, I mean, if... It's, like, today, um, in modern... Like, I know there was a... There's a Jamaican who had... Uh, athlete who has a... I think a gold medal in bobsledding because he competed for the Canadian team. Ah, uh, so he's a transplant athlete, not someone yeah. from Russia who showed up and then just sort just, of joined up no, no, in some like, of his routine. Oh, okay. Bohemian... But the Bohemian gymnastics team took him as part of their team. Right. So, um, yeah, Ireland, which is going to be the book, the end of the, the, the bit about 1906. We're going to talk a little bit more about what happened here. Ireland was also trying to break out on their own and had been for quite a while. <laughs> would continue for... Uh, uh, ten years. They, they got out in about ten years. Uh, there were three... Ish. Yeah, well... They, there were three Irish athletes at the 1906 Games and actually caused something of a ruckus about it at at least one of the medal ceremonies, which we'll talk about at the end. The Republic of Ireland wouldn't gain independence for at least another 10 years, though, and they were counted as British at the time. Which brings us to Greece, Turkey, and a bunch of asterisks. This was all part of the Balkans, like we said, that had been engaged in low-level warfare for literally decades at this point and would eventually combust into World War One. Turkey wasn't just what we know as... Uh, Turkey wasn't just what we now know as Turkey. It was the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which Greece was part of from the mid-1400s until they were able to finally break away in around 1822. This is who they kept going to war with, as the Ottoman Empire wanted them back, as far as I can tell. Uh, <laughs> also, they had some difference of opinion about where one border ended and the other started. And then there were the city-states that were technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but all the athletes competing from there were Greek. Uh, Smyrna... Istanbul, uh, Constantinople at the time, uh, Cyprus, this one's tough, Trebizondi, and Salonika. 
Are the cities in question? Half of those names have changed at this point anyway. Like I said, Istanbul, Wisconsin. Yeah. But the other ones, I don't know. Um, Turkey itself didn't even have an Olympic committee until 1908 and wasn't recognized by the IOC until 1911. Most of these athletes had Greek passports and were considered, quote, resident aliens, except for the soccer team from Smyrna, which was comprised of five British athletes, four French, and two Armenian that sounds fine. So, basically, according to Malin, the nationality of the athletes from the city-states and who they were actually competing for, quote, cannot be determined with certainty. So he lists them as Greek and then whatever city-state they were competing for. It's like like Greece slash Smyrna or whatever. Um, stuff like this is why we have the Olympic Unified team now for all the athletes who are stuck in situations where it's not really clear where the borders of their country are or who is in charge. The, that's when you'll see them kind of come in under the Olympic yeah. flag and it's not Olympic athletes of Russia or whatever. It also makes me think part of the reason the IOC sucked this game under the rug is not to deal with this, like, bookkeeping nonsense. Well, but this was going on for a while. Like, no. it, it comes up again in 1908 and I think 1912. They didn't have excuses then, in those years to yeah. get rid of the games. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, also... Due to his continuing objections to the existence of the Intercalated Games, de Cooperton did not attend. So he he went to 1896 and 1900, then he skipped 1904 and 1906. Wasn't he somewhat forced out by coup d'etat? No, he could have gone in okay. 1904. He just really hated Sullivan <laughs> and how they stole the Olympics from Chicago. So anyway, um, as with all those who did attend, one of the biggest hurdles wasn't actually getting there in the first place as we were talking about, this was still before planes or automobiles for the most part, so they all arrived by steamer ship or train. The athletes arriving via steamer ship from the west had the worst of it, as one of the things that they had to do on this trip was pass the erupting Mount Vesuvius. Huh. <laughs> yeah, that started a couple months, or like a month before this. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the really... I don't know if famous volcano names is the right word, but it's the one that kind of gets pulled out as part of jokes about erupting volcanoes, yeah. more so than what you'd think of as an actual erupting volcano. The American team were traveling on a North German Lloyd steamer ship called the Barbar Bar Barbarossa and were hit by a massive wave that almost threw several athletes overboard. Long-distance runner Harvey Cohn only survived because diver Frank Borneman managed to grab him in time. Uh, weightlifter James Mitchell dislocated his shoulder and had to withdraw from the Olympics. Martin Sheridan, Herbert Kerrigan, and Borneman himself were also all injured. The Canadians took a different passage and thus avoided this catastrophe. They also arrived at the city three weeks before the game started. In fact, one Canadian, who we'll go into more when we talk about the marathon, Billy Shering, had been there since February, training in Greece with the hopes that it would improve his performance if he was accustomed to the climate. It will. <laughs> it's not a bad plan. Yeah, no, it's not. Um, most of the European athletes were all on the same ship called the Amphitric. The German, Austrian, Czech, and Hungarian teams were then all subjected to an unusually violent storm on the Adriatic Sea for the entire course of their journey. The surf was so bad that by the end of the journey, they were all so seasick that only one athlete, Hungarian Lajos Gonski, was able to eat in the dining room. The Australians, who had the longest journey by far, apparently didn't encounter any disasters on the way. The British fencing team had the easiest time of it. The aristocrat athletes met in Naples, although it was under a foot of volcanic ash from Mount Vesuvius, so that was noteworthy. Um, they then boarded the luxury yacht of teammate 
Lord Howard de Walden uh, took a cruise around the Mediterranean and docked in the Bay of Neo Phaleron. They would then live on the yacht for the duration of the games. <laughs> but this was the first Olympic Village, right? They were the they, lucky they, ones they to didn't stay on the. Go to where the rabble were being. Housed. Yeah, no, they didn't. Uh, they were the lucky ones, obviously. While there was an Olympic Village called the Zapion, it was not great. <laughs> are we talking Sochi levels of not great? Um, we're talking like army barrack, like how many army packs hot. Of, how many packs of say, wild dogs? The, no, no, dog no wild scale. dogs. No wild okay. dogs. Um, the the rooms were basically cubicles, like made out of canvas. Like, you see, like... So not great. Yeah. With open tops and a giant exhibition hall. Noise was an issue. (laughs) Oh, so, like, they're inside something. They don't just have, like, open tops to the volcanic ash. No, no. Okay. Um, Also, the food provided was basically comprised mostly of boiled goat, uh, which offended the Americans so much that eventually they rioted and moved into the Hotel Hermes. (laughs) I guess it's a little weird to think about Americans not being able to eat something because that's like 90% of what we do. They all good. got there long enough before the game started to do some sightseeing, which would have been more fun if it weren't for the internecine warfare just breaking out on the street due to the election that was held a few days before the opening ceremonies. They talked about like gunfire in the streets and stuff while they were trying to like take in the sights. <laughs> so. So that was uh, what was going on. This is why we didn't have any more of these for, like, and the, there were no more Olympics in Greece for a long time. Um, so, getting into the games. And starting with cycling. Uh, I, don't, I didn't list... Well, we'll go through... I'll just kind of do an overview of what... Before I start talking about this, but them in depth. Uh, we had cycling, fencing, gymnastics, rowing and sculling, soccer shooting like uh firearms um swimming and diving tennis tug of war weightlifting wrestling track and field and then those were the so they're not too many events so shooting had been i believe greatly expanded uh in a maybe two games ago yeah Um, is that still the level or have they scaled it back to like a reasonable number of bullets it's still a lot But we'll get into why what we know about it isn't that much. Hmm. Anyway, cycling uh, was generally without major incident. And also, a lot of these, they just used the same uh, facilities that they had from 10 years ago. They weren't, especially the the main stadium. And and the river. Well, they didn't, you're thinking the Seine. In 1896, they did it in the Bay of Z. Bay, yes. It was so cold at one point, they weren't able to actually do anything in there because it was dangerous. This one time they're doing it in the Bay of Neo Phaleron, um, which I guess is more open to the sea, but we'll talk about that, the effect that had on competition. But yeah, they still don't have like the uh, ability to do indoor swimming events yet. That actually happens in 1908, though. So, so. close. Yeah, so we're, we're close. Uh, cycling was generally without major incident. There were no Crash McCrees this time, <laughs> which is still like my favorite name from like anything. Um, events were held in the Neo Phaleron Velodrome, which was the same velodrome as the one in 1896. Out of the six total events, Francesco Veri of Italy won gold in three of them. The 1,000 meter match sprint, the one lap time trial, and the 5,000 meter track race. There was also a 2,000 meter tandem match sprint. I, I really want tandem bicycle races to come back. Um, which John Matthews and Arthur Russian of Great Britain won a 20-kilometer paced track race, which was 
won by William Pett of Great Britain, and an individual road race, which was won by Fernand Vast of France. France swept the medals in that event, which was a bike race they held along the marathon route. Except they started at the stadium, went to marathon, and then went back. I agree we should bring back tandem cycling. It's like the tag team matches of bicycle race. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Vast winning time in the, uh, the, the, basically the bike marathon was two hours, 41 minutes, and 28 seconds. Uh, 13 of the 24 starters finished the race. Um, fencing was kind of a mess, as apparently the people running it weren't that familiar with the event. Although, despite the fact that it was the worst run event at the nineteen six Olympics, most of the events worked out smoothly enough that there isn't anything worth talking about in regards to them. There were eight fencing events, six for amateurs, two for pros. This was the last time that the professional fencers would have an official event at the Olympics until the 1980s. So we kind of phased that out after this. Uh, most of the matches were held in the outdoor courtyard at the Zapion, the site of the Olympic Village. Um, the rest were split between the Athens Lawn Tennis Club and the Athens Central School for Gymnastics. Fencing gear, even in those days, is not really designed to be worn outdoors in Greece in the summer. <laughs> Heat was an issue. Uh, they also would be running four or five events simultaneously, which, quote, gave the whole thing the appearance of a circus, according to Dutch, Dutch fencer Hendrik van Liegenberg. There were also some controversy over the rules, as when a copy of the official rules reached London preceding the games, they were obviously written by people more familiar with foils than swords, according to British fencing team manager Theodore Cook, who was also staying on the yacht. Uh, and was this a matter of like, oh, it should be till first blood, and they wrote to the death. We I, should fix that. I honestly don't know, because I don't know enough about... Foils versus swords? Yeah. To I mean, is it like a saber versus epee issue? Or? I don't know if there even are... A f like surviving records of what these rules were just that the british were mad at them yeah so mm -hmm. they so the british team wrote up all their objections and sent them back to the greek officials which apparently and apparently nearly everything they were worried about was accounted for probably because they just wanted to bring the olympic event more in line with the rest of the fencing events so like the greeks came up with their own rules for this which they're like, can't we just do this like every other fencing event that we do and the, then the greeks were like yeah okay <laughs> so this is what counts as poorly run for this Olympics, sure. which is like, this is such a breath of fresh air. <laughs> it's like, oh, we had the intern draft this up, but yeah. like, actually, we can just go back to the yeah. that. That's fine. Um, except for something to do with how the swords were marked with little buttons of steel to help judges figure out whether a hit has been made or not. The French didn't want the extra bit to help, and so they didn't have it. I don't understand what any of that meant. In the individual foil competition, one competitor in particular didn't like how the judging was going. Federico Cesarano of Italy withdrew before his last match in protest. So the judges then decided to discount every match he had been in. Georges Dylan Cavanaugh of France had lost to Cesarano and Gustav Casimir of Germany had won against him. They had been tied for first, but since Cesarano's matches now no longer counted, Dylan Cavanaugh ended up with one more point than Casimir and so he got the gold medal all to himself, uh, and Casimir Kaz ended up, Casimir uh, got the silver, and Pierre de Hue of France wound up with the bronze. Uh, the Germans protested but were denied, and so that was like another instance of this. That does kind of sound like shenanigans. I don't know that you can retroactively remove, I mean, I guess you can. Well, yeah. they can. Yeah. They can do whatever they want. 
Yeah, it's like, why would his previous matches no longer count because he didn't compete in the last one? It's like, like kind of a dumb... 1984-style erasing him from yeah. history. <laughs> team Epe had an interesting story. The German team misunderstood the schedule and were asleep when their match against the British was supposed to start. <laughs> they died. Uh, and the King of Queen and Queen of England were in attendance, too. <laughs> I... I... All right, I'm just looking at something because I thought I had something about the them showing up at the opening games, but I guess not. Or, I'm going to blame that on time zones, probably. Local time <laughs> zones are the bane of scheduling anything. Uh, eventually, the Germans showed up and lost 9-2. to two. The next match against the Belgians had to be delayed to the next day, but the British won that as well, 14-9. to nine. The French also advanced to the final after two matches against the Greeks. The first ended in a dead tie, but they easily won the rematch. On the 26th of April, the French and British teams went in for the final match. It ended in a tie, 9-9. They then went to immediately to a fence-off, which the French won, 9-6. It's like a penalty shootout yeah. for sword fighting. Yeah. It was Theodore Cook's call to do the fence-off instead of the rematch. He figured the French would be more tired after their match and then rematch against the Greeks when the British team had only had to finish their match against the Belgians. His estimation was wrong. So the French took sil took gold, British silver, and Belgian bronze. Individual saber one hit was apparently something of a spectacle. Do we not know what a fence off actually was? Because my analogy to penalty kicking, I assume, was just not. I don't. Not, not accurate. They, they had a guy. He just stood there. <laughs> if you hit him, you get a point. And See, then the first person to miss, it's like it's like a penalty. That kick. is what I had pictured in my head, but that he just cannot stands possibly there. be correct. He just stands there and you try to stab him. Don't be the guy that misses. <laughs> I don't know how this That's works. That's exactly how it worked. That's true. That's factual information. You seem pretty I was there. authoritative. I yeah. was there. I believe it. Right. Individual saber one hit was apparently something of a spectacle, especially, basically, whoever got touched first lost. So you. That's like a real sword fight. Yeah. <laughs> Giannis Georgiadis, Georgiadis of Greece won, but Hendrik van Bliesenberg had this to say about it. As for what happened in the Sabre events, that entirely belongs in the world of humor. It did not matter who who won what or how he did it, but if someone touched his opponent, he lost. I highly respected the Greek fencers, but that the Greek jury should, quote, appoint Georgiadis as the winner, that was a bit too much. So I think he's just saying it was, like, really rigged. <laughs> and, uh, gymnastics. Once again... Gymnastics was completely different from the previous Olympics. For one thing, there was only one gymnastics competition, which helped things. Which was called gymnastics? Yes. It began immediately after the opening ceremonies and finished the next day. There were four events. Team all-around, individual all-around for five events, individual all-around for six events, and rope climbing. <laughs> so there were, like, 12 events. Yeah. But they grouped up all of the non-rope climbing events, which yeah. aren't important, and put yeah. them aside. Individual all-around for five events was comprised of horizontal bar, parallel bars, horse vault, rings, and a combined high and long jump event. The competition for six events... High, highest, longest jump? No, no, uh, high jump and a long jump in one event. So Not in one jump. No, not in okay. one jump, in okay. one event. Um, the competition for six events included all of those... Plus a side horse vault, which we don't do anymore, but they just kind of, instead of going forward onto the vault, they go sideways. So you just kind of flip over it. Um, 
The side horse vault was supposed to be its own event, like rope climbing, but at the last minute they decided not to do that for reasons unknown. Another weird thing is that they gave places like in a science fair. So, okay, this is confusing. So you remember, did you ever do a science fair when you were a kid? And then it's like, if you did so, like, if you scored so much on the rubric, you got a first place. And if you scored so much on the rubric, you got a second place. I believe those were called grades when I did it. You got the A or the B or the whatever. The yeah. first, second was actually like a oh, like a juried winner. Thing. Yeah. Oh, no. We just, it was like if you scored so high on the rubric, you got first place. And so then... here are like the five first places. Yes. Mm. So we didn't have science at my school. Oh, that's right. Kentucky. I actually have no idea what you guys are talking about. You didn't is have science, science fair? Is science fair a real thing? Yeah, yeah. science fairs are a real thing. I thought that was in, like, TV shows. No. no, no well, I mean, it is also drama. sometimes in TV shows, but it's based on a real thing that children did. Yeah, we do. didn't We didn't really, we didn't really do much with science. We mm -hmm. did, like, Pennsylvania Junior Academy of Science. I think I went to a fake school. I got out science by Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's not surprising to me. It was dramatic, though, because, like, I never remembered to do this stuff till the night before. My mom, I think, still has PTSD. So, <laughs> so. I need a control group and a little cardboard stand-up for the presentation right now. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, anyway, so uh, everybody who scored in the top 10% or so was awarded first place. The top, tw like, 20 to 10% were awarded second place, etc., for example, in the individual five-event competition, you could earn a maximum of 20 points in each event with a max possible score of 100, right? Five events, 20 points Are you points asking me to each. do math right now? No. <laughs> so everybody who scored between 90 and 100 was awarded a gold medal. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> we have combined gymnastics into one event, but everyone can win. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like a multi-ball yeah. situation. Um. Same with the six-event competition, except the max score was 120 instead of 100, because uh, there were six events. So everyone who scored between 110 and 120 was awarded a gold medal and etc. That's not proportional. No, it's not. It, I'm upset about this. <laughs> it None of this makes sense. Uh, rope climbing was a little different, as that was a timed event. So, like, objective. <laughs> what? <laughs> so... So gymnastics became one event, but there were, like, four sets of gold medals <laughs> yes. of more than one each. Well, I mean, like, if you, you can do, like, now we have team all around, right? You can win a gold medal and team all around with the rest of your team. Mm -hmm. And then you can win individual all around and get a gold medal in that. So that part isn't weird. I'm team IOC. These games are stupid. <laughs> this is worse than the 1904 one where there were two gymnastics they're just giving gold apart. They're just giving gold medals to everybody. All right. In the team competition, there were three teams that participated, but not for points, basically as an exhibition. So there was a Greek team, a Swedish team, and a team of Danish women. As the gymnastics competition was held in the Panathenaic Stadium, it marks the first time women competed inside the main stadium of the Olympic Games, ancient or modern. Theodore Cook, the British, the British, uh, the team manager of the fencing team we quoted earlier described him saying the most pleasing of the gymnastics exhibitions was that given by the Danish girls short skirted and neat legged led by a teacher in gray flowing robes with abundant light golden hair. 
so they should all also get medals. I guess I just I just imagine their team leader is looking like Holdo from the new Star Wars. I'm well. <laughs> I'm really liking that we have this historical account that like is prose, but like it's prose reporting on like an Olympic result, but it's also written in male gaze. <laughs> <laughs> the other six teams who competed uh, finished in this order, first to last. Uh, Norway, Denmark, the men, because the women weren't actually competing for, for medals. Italy, there were two Italian teams. There was Italy for Pistoja slash Florence and Italy for Rome. Germany and Hungary. I'm not sure how each event was scored, but the max a te- maximum of points a team could possibly score for the competition was 20. But how short were their skirts? <laughs> they were those little, like, gymnastic shorts. The little, the little short shorts. Yes. Uh, but all teams who earned 18 to 20 points were awarded a gold. So Norway, who scored 19 points, and Denmark, who scored 18, were both gold medal winners, I guess. They, so so 1918 are, in fact, the same number. Yeah. It's a little-known mathematical fact. <laughs> of the 37 competitors in the five-event all-around, only 10 are not considered to have won first or second place. <laughs> <laughs> well, they must feel terrible. However, the top three in order of score were Pierre Pay. Pese of France, Alberto Braglia of Italy, and Georges Charmoyle of France. Of the 25 in the six-event competition, eight were awarded first place and seven second place. However, the same three athletes were first, second, third, and in the same order. Rope climbing was very popular for the Greeks, as it was won by a Greek in the Panathenaic Stadium. Georgios Aliprantis climbed the 10-meter rope in 11... Point, uh, 11 and two-fifths point two seconds. Mm, no, that's shenanigans. Fractions and decimal points yeah. in the same measurement? Yeah, that's how they recorded these. Uh, they know that point two is just another fifth, right? <laughs> I don't know. But it was like point two of a fifth. Vela oh! <laughs> <laughs> Erodi of Hungary <laughs> and Konstantinos Kazanitas of Greece tied at 13 and 4 fifths seconds. No. Cousin, no. That one's fine. Yeah, that one's fine. There's no decimals. I'm mad about the fractions. There's fractions, but no decimals. I get mad when they combine the fractions. I don't, and the decimals. I'm mad about fractions now. Anyway, Cozanitas touched the pole while climbing, and Erodi didn't, so Erodi got the silver, and, and Cozanitas got bronze. So, in the rowing, in 1906, the best rowers, or at least the most decorated, were the British, the Canadians, and the Americans. But none, no teams from those countries competed at these games. <laughs> the events were held in the neo Falaron Bay, and as we'll talk about when we get to the swimming and diving, they had a problem with the weather. The wind was pretty high the whole time, but especially... And it was raining volcano? No, they... <laughs> this was, like, out of the path of the volcanic okay. ash. Like, that was in Italy. Okay. And it, it just was, like, I guess, wreaking havoc with the tides and stuff. So, the wind was pretty high the whole time, but especially on the 25th and 26th, when gale force winds made any kind of sport in the bay far too dangerous. There were six events. Single skulls, coxed pairs for 1,000 meters, coxed pairs for one mile for some reason, which is 1,609 meters. You said coxed pairs. Yeah. Coxed fours. <laughs> Six-man naval rowing boats with coxswain, both for 2,000 meters, and 16-man naval rowing boats for 3,000 meters. Notes of interest. The Belgian team who got second place in the one-mile coxed pairs somehow made it all the way to the games before they realized they needed a coxswain. 
It's right in the name. Yes. You, can, you can just grab a boy off the street. That's what they did. Yeah, that's, I'm like, just <laughs> get a boy. What any self-respecting Olympian would do, as we know from 1900, and they recruited a kid from the crowd. There's just boys all over the street. They're great at boats. And so Theophilakis Siliakos of Greece became an Olympic silver medalist. Get yourself a boat boy. It seems to work. It does. Why are these people bringing boys? They can just get one, get a fresh one off the street. Italy won. <laughs> pick out, pick out a boat boy. Put him on your boat. Get a medal. <laughs> That's how the sport works. They only got a silver. Those those guys at the front, the Paris they Games got gold. They didn't bring an integral part of their team. They came in second. Yeah, that's they like grabbed, we're at the Super Bowl. We forgot the kicker. <laughs> we we <laughs> grabbed, grabbed a street out. urchin. You, did you know there's actually rules for how to do this for uh, hockey? <laughs> Wait, just to pick up a boy? No, well, not necessarily a boy, but you can get like Chris was telling me that recently, my husband, sorry, was telling me that recently in the NFL, and I don't have this in front of me. NHL. NHL, yes. Uh, they had a thing where like all like the three goalies of this one team were either injured or like they weren't able to play, and there's like rules for the NHL from like way early in the NHL about how to go about picking somebody from the crowd to come in and play goalie for you. And that's what they did because oh they had god. to. They didn't have any goalies. Oh my god. Did they just pick the biggest guy in the stands? I don't know. That's what I'd do. Yeah, right? Get, 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 get the biggest boy that you can. Stick him in front of the goal. Anyway. Um, pick a boy. So any yeah. Boy. <laughs> so... Um, but we actually know his name. We never found out the name of those French yeah. boys. Maybe they're <laughs> the same boy. Oh! <gasps> It, it could have been. It was only six it, years later. In my heart of this. He's, he's the same urchin that goes from, from Olympics to non-Olympics. He just really likes watching the rowing competitions, and they keep choosing him. He just wants to be on the boat. He could, like, it was only six years later. If he was 10 in 1900, he'd only be 16. He'd still be a boy. Yeah. Anyway. I'm sorry for making this real weird. This isn't weird. This, I mean, it's not, <laughs> you're not making it weird. It was weird when we started. It's, it's, it, it is strange that they're just grabbing boys off the street and putting them on boats. Like, hey... <laughs> Can you count? <laughs> um, Want to ride a boat? And these guys qualified without a coxswain too. Like that's fun. <laughs> so this sport sounds stupid, and yeah. like you could just pick a boy off the street and win at it. So what? What is? Why is this a? Okay, I think this that role Still? may have been replaced in modern day by like a metronome. Uh, yeah. or fair, fair, super fair. Um. Anyway, Italy won the six-man rowing gold and were described by the Chicago. Chicago Tribune is winning, quote, in slashing style. The spectacle as the whalers came down the course was fine. The Italian crew rode its peculiar native stroke, the men rising in their seats and throwing the full weight of their bodies into the stroke. The coxswain standing in the stern and swinging forward with one arm over his head, giving time to the crew. How am I supposed to want to do this with a straight face? <laughs> I'm just supposed to sit here and listen to that. I think the Chicago Tribune sent someone who'd never seen rowing before. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, they usually don't stand up, is what he was saying. That's why they lose. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta get that height. The Tribune also described the Greeks who won the gold in the 16-man rowing competition as having, quote, displayed the traditional prowess and watermanship of their nation. Of the five boats in the competition, four were Greek and one was Italian. So the fact that a Greek ship won is not that surprising. And we're getting to soccer, which they called football, but we're Americans, so we're going to call it soccer. I believe they still do call it football. 
They do, but they're wrong. Uh, this was not a very deep field of competition. <laughs> I'm just going with soccer because I get confused this when is, I keep thinking the, about like you know Johnny United showing this up. This is not all the This is not the official position of this podcast or the IOC. I want to apologize to our one listener in Prague. <laughs> we I love just, you. <laughs> I want to apologize to me. <laughs> anyway, for you. All right, we're talking about. I'm. Do, you want to do the research? Do the research. Well, <laughs> I'm gonna have to write all this up. I have to do it in ways that try to limit my own confusion. Anyway, there was not a very deep field of competition. Denmark, Greece, and Turkey were the only countries that had teams competing. Technically, all the Turkish teams were asterisk teams. Two teams from Smyrna and one from Thessaloniki, which was part of the Ottoman Empire at the time. At least. One of the Smyrna teams and the team from Thessaloniki were almost certainly all Greek, going by the names. And the other team from Smyrna was a mishmash of British, French, and Armenian athletes, like I said. The matches were held in the velodrome, with some of the cycling events happening during halftime of the matches. The Danes... Yeah, so just like take a break. I thought and you were going to say happening out. around the outside of the field of the soccer game. You're jumping ahead. They did that in 1908. Ah. All right. <laughs> The Danes were so dominant that the matches were poorly attended. The only match that mustered much interest in terms of spectators was Greece versus Thessaloniki. This match was reportedly quite rough with a number of penalties. The final Did they have the red card system at this point? I don't know. Okay. Uh, the final match was between Greece and Denmark. Greece was losing 9-0 at the half and just didn't show up for the second half of the game and were then disqualified. <laughs> you can just not come back? But, if the halftime speech is really bad and then you're in the locker room and the coach is like, guys, we got to pull together. We got to get out there. And actually, you know what? Let's just go drink. We're not going to win. Let's hey, just bail. We're losing 9-0 Yeah, that's half. fine. Go to the bar. Yeah. I, the same thing's going to happen either way. It's just like go go half an hour early. 45 minutes? I don't know how long soccer games are. Like six hours. A playoff was arranged between Greece, Smyrna, and Thessaloniki, which the Greeks protested. They thought they should get silver just for making it to the final match, even though they didn't actually finish it. They protested, the protest was rejected, so they withdrew. So Smyrna and Thessaloniki played for second place. Smyrna won silver and Thessaloniki bronze. I'm talking about shooting. There were a lot of shooting events at the 1906 Interclated Games. However, they only received cursory coverage of the press, so we don't have a whole lot to say about them. Some of the events seem to have been chosen for the specific purpose of favoring Western European athletes. Specifically, the Graz-type military rifle match and the Graz-type military pistol match were developed in France in 1873. They were included in the 1906 games. The rifle match was won by Leon Moreau of France, and the pistol match was swept by the French shooters. This is fun. They did two dueling events, both at over 20 meters. Wait. Yes. It's much like how the Epes are to first blood. The <laughs> shooting duels are also to first blood, but probably also last blood because you get shot and <laughs> Did die. Did people die? No. Um, how? The first was Ovise, where the shooters would take their time firing. The second was a rapid fire pistol type match called O Commandant. Did people not want to live back in the day? Let me get to. <laughs> How this works. Everybody just like, you know, life expectancy is about 50 anyway. You know, (laughs) screw it at this point. Let's just shoot at each other. Let's just shoot at each other Um, and see who's the best at it. The rapid fire type, the shooter would stand with his gun at his side, loaded and cocked. The range officer asked if he was ready. When he said yes, the officer would give the command, fire one, two, three at a rate of 100 per minute. That's very fast. Yeah, the shooter then had to raise his pistol and begin firing before the count of three. 
This is insane. In both dueling events, the targets were dummies dressed in frock coats. Oh, that's lame. <laughs> that's so... Now, now I'm like, we're like, but we wanted them to be shooting at people. <laughs> no one accidentally fired at another person and was like, oh no, I thought it was a dummy. Yeah. Oh. No, apparently not. Like, it would be a great cover for murder. It would. It really wouldn't. There's so many witnesses. <laughs> no, but like, you thought it was the dummy. He was wearing the same thing. Was he standing where the dummy is in the dummy coat? No, no. That's not a good excuse. If you were charismatic enough, you could play that off. You could just challenge them to a real duel and kill them. That was legal at the time, wasn't it? (laughs) I don't know. When did that stop being a thing? Like 2014. In Paraguay. Okay. Uh, Along with the French, the Swiss and the Greeks were also dominating forces. But the single most decorated shooter of the 1906 games was Norwegian Gudbrand Gudbrandsen Skatebo. No. <laughs> yes, that was nope. his name. False. <laughs> Too legit. All right. Swimming and diving, along with the rowing events, were held in the Neo Falaron Bay. Diving was supposed to take place over the 26th and 27th of April, but had to get pushed back due to gale force winds in the bay, like what happened with rowing. Uh, so some of the events started on the 27th, and they were completed on the 28th. Diving in 1906 was a little different than what we have now. There was no springboard. There were three diving platforms at 4, 8, and 12 meters above the water, we think. There seems to be some reports of a springboard at the 4 meter height, but all other evidence indicates they were all platforms. The divers did three dives off of each height. They were judged on two criteria, the difficulty of the attempted dive and the execution of it. Uh, each criteria was worth a maximum of 10 points, so each dive had a maximum point value of 20. So the most a diver could theoretically earn over the course of the competition was 180 points. Gold medalist Gottlob Valls of Germany earned a total of 156 points. Uh, George Hoffman of Germany earned 150.2 points to get the silver, and Otto Satzinger of Austria took bronze with 147.4 points. It seems as though the rules were all understood by the competitors beforehand, so there were reports of protests over the judging this time around. Because I think there were a lot in 1904. Oh, remember there were Germans didn't know they had to, like, look pretty getting into the water. They, yeah, it's like splashing's not part of this competition. Yeah, it was just uh, fancy diving, not fancy entering the water in yeah, or whatever. Fancy, yeah. <laughs> like, it's not fancy swimming. Yeah, so so yeah, they all understood this time, so they weren't uh, protesting. Uh, swimming in the Neo-Faleron Bay was difficult, to put it mildly. Like, even aside from that day, they couldn't do it at all because it was too dangerous. The competition lasted from April 24th through 28th, with events canceled on the 26th due to bad weather. The judges had trouble keeping private boats out of the swimming lanes. And the waves were bad enough that it hampered the breathing of the athletes. Some actually inhaled so much water they'd drop out of races. Please tell me one of the private boats was the um, yacht carrying the <laughs> fencing team. They were in the bay. I don't know. Okay. Like they didn't. They so didn't call them... the boat thing now. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't call them out specifically by name, but I'm sure right. they weren't thrilled. <laughs> anyway, it's fine. nevertheless, it was the greatest collection of swimmers ever gathered in one event. Uh, Zoltan von Halme of Germany, which is somebody we've, er, Hungary. Somebody we've been talking about with, like, all of these, I think. Um, who was already an Olympic gold medalist was there, along with Charles Daniels of the United States, who was also in 1904, not to be confused with Charlie Daniels, and all of Great Britain's best swimmers. In total, there were 43 competitors from 11 different nations competing. In a total of four events, all freestyle, 100-meter, uh, 400-meter, one-mile, and the 4-by-240-meter relay. There was a pretty good spread on the medals won, with the golds all going to different nations, and six nations earning at least a bronze. 
Great Britain, with its fantastic roster, won the most medals at five. Charles Daniels won the gold in the 100-meter sprint. Otto Scheff of Austria won the gold in the 400-meter. Henry Taylor of Great Britain won gold in the one-mile race. And Zoltan von Halme led the Hungarian team to the gold in the relay. Uh, side note, Otto Scheff was from the part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that is now Poland. <laughs> but he uh, was counted as an Austrian for this. Um, the tennis events were held at the Athens lawn tennis club near the Ilissus River. They were very poorly attended because, as opposed to other Olympics, almost none of the world's top players competed. Max de Cougas of France was the best player who showed up and he won three gold medals. Uh, men singles, men doubles, and mixed doubles with his wife as his partner. There were six women who competed in the women's singles and mixed doubles. So those are all the six women who showed up to these Olympics. Um, Marie de Cougas of France was the only one who wasn't Greek. Although one of the women competing for Greece was actually Egyptian. Uh, Max de Cougas was the greatest French tennis player of his time, and not until the, quote, four musketeers of the 1920 games would another French athlete come close. If you count the 1906 games, which obviously doesn't, but whatever, he is still the most decorated tennis Olympian, as he earned six over the course of his career. Venus Williams, as of the recording of this episode, has won five. So she's the official winningest tennis olympian <laughs> um, assist person. yeah and they Sorry. both earned four gold medals so they're the same on that uh for me what's most significant is the three other medals that dakugas earned were 1920 so we'll be That's talking quite about a jump yeah that was like 14 years later he won uh he got real three good medals in intervening years um he's training on an island alone he was actually stranded there and he had to learn to be good at tennis to stay keep from going bad in terms of uh tennis players ranking up or racking up olympic medals uh serena williams has racketing up olympic. <laughs> yeah serena williams and reggie doherty uh who we talked about at the 1900 olympics uh both have four but serena has more gold medals so she's edges reggie out there uh tug of war spectators cared about this a lot more than the competitors did they held the competition in the middle of the panathenaic stadium as part of the track and field competition while the crowd was really into it the teams competing just picked whoever was strongest from their gymnastics and weightlifting teams and tossed them in that seems like the right way to pick the team why yeah. do we think that that was made out of apathy pick the biggest boy <laughs> well i guess like you they would like practice or train for this at all but no they didn't thought okay sure how would you practice you don't have another team to pull against germany won the gold and they the had only decided who was going to be on the team on the boat ride from Italy to Greece right before getting Seems there. Seems like a good place to There's decide. There's not a lot of coordination no. of war. No. Everybody Just pull as much as you can. Get the yeah. strongest people seems like a perfectly respectable strategy. Okay. A couple big boys. And we're going to do weightlifting. Also big boys. Yes. Uh, weightlifting was also part of the track and field and held at the Panathenaic Stadium. There were two events, the Unlimited Two Hands Clean and Jerk and the Unlimited One Hand. John Steinbeck of... Joseph Steinbeck of Austria. <laughs> Claimed author. <laughs> yeah. Joseph Steinbach. Uh, Bach. Not even Beck. Uh, Steinbach of Austria was heavily favored in both events. He had begun his weightlifting career in 1898 in Vienna and had already racked up a number of national and world championships by 1906. 
This was the only Olympics he competed in, as afterwards he went pro, though mainly as a wrestler and occasionally doing weightlifting exhibitions. He was a professional wrestler, you said? Yes, he was. Do, 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 do. <laughs> in 1910, he first issued a challenge to Arthur Saxon, another well-known strongman, to compete for the title of professional weightlifting champion of the world. Wait, did they invent WrestleMania? That's... Saxon never took him up on it. No, it's happening. No, inventing... that was a joke. No. They're inventing wrestling fans. Stop. <laughs> They're inventing being... John Cena, he's the wrestler I know. <laughs> Am I doing this right? No. Anyway. I'm doing my best. Um, Steinbach in 1910, he first issued a challenge to Arthur Saxon, another well-known man, uh, strong man, well-known man, well-known strong man, <laughs> to compete for the title of professional weightlifting champion of the world. Saxon never took him up on it, despite multiple challenges, probably because Steinbach was pretty much unbeatable. After his death in 1937, a huge granite monument was erected in Vienna in his honor, courtesy of a fund raised by Austrian and German weightlifters and wrestlers. However, Steinbach was not successful in the clean and jerk. The clean and jerk was still a relatively new move, although it was very clear in the information given to the competitors ahead of time how they were supposed to lift the weight. The rule read as follows. It is forbidden to let the weight rest on the knees or on the stomach in lifting it to the shoulder. But if in carrying it from the shoulder above the bar, the head, the bar touches the chest of the competitor, the lifting is taken into consideration. So it starts at the ground, mm -hmm. and what they would do was they would, like, get it to their knees and take a break, or get it, like, rest down on their belly and take a break. But you, in clean and jerk, they could only do that on, like, the chest? Shoulders, I think? Chest, chest on the competitor. So they can rest on the chest and then lift it up from oh. there. So... Listeners, I am acting this out. Uh, <laughs> oh, right. Audio medium. Steinbach was more familiar with the continental style of barbell lifting, where the lifter moved the weight to the to waist height and stopped before moving it to his shoulders. Dimitrios Tofilos of Greece was more familiar with the clean and jerk and defeated Steinbach for the gold with a winning lift of 142.4 kilograms. In a fit after losing, Steinbach grabbed Tofilos's barbell and picked it up in the continental style before moving it to his shoulders and lifting it six times in rapid succession. The crowd got into it and thought Steinbach was robbed, but according to the British reporters who witnessed this, Steinbach performed in a very unsportsmanlike way. Steinbach then went on to win gold in the one-hand competition. Uh, Presumably while flipping them off with his other hand. <laughs> <laughs> a whole hand free for obscene gestures. Tofilos himself was something of a story. As a child, his arm had been crushed when it was run over by a wagon. His father refused to let doctors amputate, and for the rest of his life, Tofilos' right arm was two and a half inches shorter than his left. Ooh. After winning the gold medal... But functional? Yeah, apparently. So not amputating was the yeah. right call. Yeah, I yeah. guess so. Yeah. Doctors wait, sucked wait. in 1906. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait a minute, they wanted to cut it off? Well, like, that was when he was a child, so that would have been like the 1800s, late oh. 1800s. Oh yeah, they were just, yeah. they were yeah. cutting everything off back then. After winning the gold medal, he he won it, like, his arm was two and a half inches shorter on one side, but then he won the gold medal in weightlifting. With the two hands. With the two hand, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, after winning the gold medal, he went to America and performed as a strongman on vaudeville. He became a citizen in 1921 and was an important and popular promoter of physical culture in the U.S. for the rest of his life. Physical culture? Yeah, like physical fitness. CrossFit. <laughs> there, there is very little in the English language press about the wrestling at the 1906 Olympics. The Greeks, however, wrote a lot about it. There was lightweight, middleweight, heavyweight, and all-around competition, all Greco-Roman style. The all-around was when the champions of the other three weight classes competed against each other. 
The matches were held in the infield of the Panathenaic Stadium. The crowds and the competitors were so into the matches that they kept going after nightfall and managed to get enough lights to hold a few more matches before calling it quits and continuing the next day. For all their interest and the biggest number of participants, the Greeks didn't medal at these games. Austria and Denmark dominated, each netting four medals. There were 40 competitors from 12 nations, 11 Greeks, 8 Austrians, and then various others in decreasing numbers. It was difficult to pick a favorite going in as the first wrestling world championships were held in 1904, and then there were two different ones in 1905. Rudolf Waltz of Austria won gold in the lightweight division. He had not competed in any of the world championships. Soren Marinus Jensen of Denmark won gold in the heavyweight. He had competed in the 1904 championship, but hadn't even placed. Werner Weckman of Weckman? I don't know how you say it. In Finland, won gold in the middleweight competition, and I don't know anything else about him. <laughs> Jensen, the heavyweight gold medalist, also won gold in the all-around because he was a lot bigger than the other two. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. is the reason there are weight classes, right? Yeah, so like, I don't know why don't, you would have It's the interesting that it's like, now that you've won all the medals, <laughs> to hell with the weight classes. But, but like, oh, no, that is why we have these. No, yeah, like, is it is it, is it it really, can, can a small boy beat a bigger boy? No. <laughs> it turns out. But now we know for sure. <laughs> it's not just hypothetical. It's not just a thought experiment. So, <clears throat> now we're on to the, the big one, track and field. One thing that didn't happen with the track and field competition was record-breaking. Even though the weather was uniformly perfect, cloudlessly sunny with temperatures in the 70s the entire time, uh, mid-20s for you Celsius types, the problem was the track. Again, they used the Panathenaic Stadium with its weirdly narrow track. The ancient Greeks didn't build it to modern standards. Surprise, surprise. I mean, that's not really their fault. And the surface of the actual running, the actual running surface was loose cinders, which made traffic traction difficult. In addition to that, the officials decided to run all of the races clockwise for some unknown reason. Mirror <laughs> other, mode. Yeah, other than some meets in Britain in the 19th century, every other major athletic event has been running has run counterclockwise even today. So they were just they were they just got to be them. They they flipped the the mirror bit on the. <laughs> settings despite all of that and in contrast to the two previous olympics this was the greatest track and field competition the world had ever seen oh but it had speed walking so it was not it yeah. was in fact garbage <laughs> we'll get to that the 100 meter sprint suffered from a number of false starts due to com competitors having trouble understanding all the greek instructions eventually they worked it out though and american archie Hahn won gold defending his title from 1904 this is one event where the arguably greatest living sprinter at the time was unable to compete, though, and that would be Arthur Duffy. Remember we talked about him? He had been banned by uh, Sullivan because he wouldn't wear the right shoes. Uh, American oh. Faye Moulton narrowly beat out Australian Nigel Barker for silver, Barker taking bronze. Noted fashion photographer, Nigel yeah, Barker? Yeah, he, he is a uh, Olympic bronze medalist, I, which he won in 1906. I apologize for my behavior. <laughs> In the 400 meter, American, Her American Harry Hillman was the favorite, along with Britain's Wyndham Housewell and Nigel Barker of Australia. Paul Pilgrim of America had been added to the team at the last minute and had been required to pay for his own passage. <laughs> Surprising everybody, Pilgrim took gold with a lead of over four meters, Housewell taking silver and Barker bronze, and Pilgrim won gold again in the 1800 meter, 
another race he was given no chance to win, narrowly beating 1904's gold medalist in the event, James Lightbody. <clears throat> Excuse me. Housewell took bronze. Americans were not favored to win the 1500 meter. Smart Money was on John McCow and Reginald Crabb, like literally C R A B B E. <laughs> Why is that such a great name? That's a real name. I didn't know. It's that... really good though. I thought J.K. Rowling made it up. Oh wait, like Crab and Goyle. Like C R A B B E. Yeah. Oh, I wanted it to just be like the animal. No, no. Oh, I wanted it to be Reginald Crab. No, he's like the the grandfather of Malfoy's henchmen. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right. Anyway. Um, <laughs> James Lightbody, gold medalist from 1904, was in the race, but wasn't really favored. He basically rope-a-doped them, holding back until the last 20 meters when he sprinted so fast he beat the rest of the pack. McGow took silver, and Christian Hellstrom of Sweden took bronze. And this is interesting. They actually listed the top three in finishing times instead of how many meters they were behind the winner. Oh. So, Precedence being set yet again. Yeah. Um, but these games are fake. For uh, a non-Olympics, there's so much Olympic precedent. <laughs> Lightbody uh, did in 4 minutes and 12 seconds. Macau, 4 minutes, 12 seconds, 12, 3 and 3-fifths okay. of a second, so they're, they're doing time, but they're not doing it well yet. I'll give them that. <laughs> doing the fractions and decimal points, guys. Mm. That's what we've got. And Hellstrom, 4 minutes, 13 and 2-fifths seconds. <laughs> The next race was the five-mile race, or 8,046.74 meters, and I have no idea why they had this distance. But it was an English distance, and the British runners were expected to win. Henry Howtree of Great Britain did win gold, but silver and bronze went to Johannes Vonberg and Edward Dahl of Sweden. Initially, the bronze had gone to John Daly, but he was disqualified for swerving into Dahl's lane. Why were the British expected to win? Just because the measurement was in the English system? Like, well, yeah, and like it's, it's still an amount of space that other people from other countries know how to but run. But it's, it's harder to run, like, if you don't actually know, if you don't have a concept of how far it is. Yeah. Well, if it's on a longer thing, you're mm. like, oh, how long actually is this? And the British guys, they compete in this distance a lot. Right. For, like, yeah. they're national champions and stuff, and, like, these other guys don't. Um, yeah. So, uh, John... Daly, who was disqualified uh, later, was determined he had not been intentionally cheating. He was just exhausted. The marathon was not nearly so exciting as it was in 1904, though there are some fun stories. 14 countries sent athletes to participate, which made it the most international marathon ever. The Greeks were hoping to repeat their 1896 victory, and the favorite was Diamantes Cantius. They held the race at 3 p.m., and it was quite a warm day at 81 degrees or 27 degrees Celsius. However, the Greeks were determined to have better conditions than the Americans had, which eventually would we not be hard. We will give you non-poisonous water. Yeah. We've cleared the bar. Yeah. Well, they, at they, more than one location. They mm. went above and beyond that. All right. The entire route had a guard of five soldiers at each mile marker there to provide medical supervision. Ambulances, military surgeons, nurses, and stretchers were posted every five miles. The Athens police kept the route clear, who were assisted by a battalion of infantry, two squadrons of cavalry, and one squadron of gendarmerie who were uh, police armed with firearms. So no problems with feral dogs. Yeah, no like, problem. No feral dogs. dogs win a firefight against the <laughs> gendarmerie. The head timekeeper was a cavalry lieutenant who rode ahead of the runners. There were no cars on the track, and changed mounts four times over the course of the race. As you recall earlier, I mentioned the Canadian who showed up two months early to train on the course. I don't know if he went that early strategically or if it was just cheaper passage. The Canadians had tried to send two runners, James Caffrey and William Shering, but couldn't raise the funds. The city council of Hamilton 
vetoed a civic fund to send them, and when they tried to hold a public concert to raise money, they made just $75. Oh! <laughs> Which they gave to Sharing. Sharing got a tip from a bartender, William Butch Collier, about a horse race. He bet the whole $75 on 6 to 1 odds for Sicily, who then won the race, giving him enough money to get to Greece. Nice. <laughs> he then trained for two months on the actual course, losing 20 pounds in the process, but he did win the race with a time of 2 hours, 51 minutes, 23 and 3 fifths seconds, beating silver medalist Johan Svanberg of Sweden by nearly 7 minutes. American William Frank took bronze at a little over two minutes behind Svanberg. The top placing Greek was Ioannis Alephos, who came in fifth. When Schering was about two miles from the stadium, a cannon was fired from the Rosarian school to notify spectators that the winner was approaching. The crowd was noticeably dejected that the winner wasn't Greek, but Prince Georgios repeated his stunt of running the last lap with the winner anyway. So he did the... That's a good sport. Yeah. Schering finished the race barefoot, carrying his shoes in his hands. Mm. Because the shoes were terrible. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the Sorry. shoes that people were required to be wearing because of the IOC rules? No, or? it's not IOC rules. It's James Sullivan will screw up your entire career if you don't wear the shoes that he owns stake in. Oh, right. Yeah, that's what he did to Duffy. So, although well, this guy was Canadian, so I think it was just his shoes were just crap. Yeah. I mean, shoes were bad. Yeah, shoes, shoes were, were bad, bad until very recently. Yeah, well, there was... I want to say it was like '68 was the guy who founded Nike. He competed in I those feel like Olympics. It was it was it was after Munich. Yeah, it's in that it's in that cult documentary. It is. Yeah, they talk about that guy. '72. That would be '72. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, so that we'll, thing's crazy. We'll talk about when they actually got good shoes in a, a long time from now. <laughs> it's <laughs> shockingly recent. Why yeah, bother like... carrying them into the stadium with you? Are they Wait, still valuable? You lose your shoes. Yeah. You, you don't want to carry shoes if you're running a race in the Olympics. You've clearly never worn heels. <laughs> on a night out. I think if you wanted to you get somewhere quickly, you would abandon those heels. You don't just you don't just leave them. Mm. Anyway. Um, so we get to throwing. The favorite in all the throwing events and the pentathlon. Or what are we talking about here? Are we talking about throwing or pentathlon? We're talking about pentathlon. Alright. The favorite in all the throwing events and the pentathlon was Martin Sheridan. An American athlete who had been born in Bohola County, Mayo, Ireland, and emigrated to the U.S. in 1900 at the age of 19. When he it's wa- Mayo. Mayo. What did I say? Mayo? All right. I think it's funny because it's literally like the condiment. Yeah. County Mayo. I think it's like the clinic. Uh, condiment. When Sheridan, <clears throat> when Sheridan wasn't winning nearly every Olympic medal he could get his hands on, he was a well-respected police officer in New York City. During the time he competed, there was no official world record tracking authority, but he is credited by various sources with setting somewhere between 7 and 16 world records. This is just somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, there's no final authority on this. His biggest fame is in the discus, where he won gold in 1904, 1906, and 1908, but all told he won nine Olympic medals, five gold. The AAU didn't have a pentathlon event at the time, but they did have an all-round championship, which he won in 1905, 1907, and 1909. He set world records each time he competed in these events, and his final score of 7,385 points wasn't broken until Jim Thorpe managed to squeak past his score in 1912. When Sheridan died in 1918, Jim Thorpe said in his obituary, Sheridan was the greatest athlete in the world. He could do things I never could. I've already, 
oh, I, I rearranged things. I'm going to be mentioning him again. I'm going to talk about him again in the jumping events. Um, where he won silver in both standing jump events because not even he could beat Ray Yuri at those events. It was the standing high jump that hampered his performance in uh, in the discus throw Greek style where he placed fourth as those events were being held concurrently and he had to go back and forth between them. Okay, so he was in the pentathlon and part of it was... Um, Oh, no, no, this isn't about the pentathlon. This is about the throwing. I'm sorry. Things got rearranged and then all my headers disappeared. Um, fix in post. Yeah. So he, in the discus throw Greek style, he placed fourth because he was also competing in the standing high jump at the time and he had to go back and forth between them. So there were um, merged jumping events in gymnastics this year, correct? Mm -hmm. And so, but still a bunch of jumping events in track and field. Yeah. Why I don't did know. one set of sports like jumping less than the other set? I don't know. But since we're talking about discus throw Greek style, if you could read the excerpt where we explain what that is. Oh, yes. Uh, discus throw Greek style. Don't hold the piece of paper. <laughs> For this test, a pedestal 80 centimeters long and 70 centimeters broad is inclined with a maximum height of 15 centimeters behind and a minimum height of 5 centimeters in front. The Hellenic method of throwing the discus is, quote, something, end quote, like the following. I cannot explain why that word is in quotes nor the footnote, and I choose not to try. But there is a description here. The thrower places himself on the pedestal with the feet apart and holding the discus in either hand. He then takes it with both hands slightly stretched, lifting them without letting go of the discus and stretching out the rest of his body to the same way in the same direction. After that, he turns the trunk slightly to the right and bends sharply so as to bring the left hand with, when free to the right knee and the right hand still holding the discus as far back as the build of the shoulder permits. At this moment, the right foot should be forward and the legs bent. The right foot rests on the sole and the left on the toes only. Then by a sharp and simultaneous extension of the whole body, the thrower throws the discus straight in front of him. So the whole point of this was they were trying to recreate the discus throw as depicted in Greek art. Which is cool, but maybe not actually how to throw a discus. No, it was nuts. They never did this again. <laughs> Um, it's like if we divide, we devised all of the shooting events after like the Born Identity firefight. Yeah, pretty much. It's like how, like I mean, they did the art is really good, but it, it's like how do you actually do what's depicted on here? I don't know. Like, well, you need a muscular structure that is made of solid marble with no <laughs> sinews. So, um, in this event, Werner Yarvinen of Finland won gold, Nikolaus Georgiantis of Greek silver, and Istvan Mudin of Hungary bronze. Uh, Sheridan won silver in stone throw, which was an event he originally wasn't even planning on competing in, but after James Mitchell dislocated his shoulder in that boat accident on the way there, he took his place. Nikolaus Georgiantis redeemed his silver failure and won gold in that event, with Mikhail Dorizis of Greece slash Constantinople taking bronze. The only throwing event which Martin didn't or Martin Sheridan didn't compete in was the javelin, which is ironic because he was gifted with a commemorative javelin by the Greek government after these games that is still displayed in a pub in County Mayo. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, winning gold in Javelin was Eric Lemming of Sweden, uh, with Newt Lindbergh and Bruno Soderstrom of Sweden taking silver and bronze. These are all fake. <laughs> Soderstrom has, like, two umwelts in his name. Uh, in fact, the top seven Javelin places were all taken by Scandinavians. Hjalmar Melander of Sweden in the fourth, Werner Jarvinen of Finland in the fifth, and Arnie Hals and Konrad Karlsrud of Norway in sixth and seventh, respectively. Remember Eric Lemming's name, as he will have he will be appearing in future episodes and is also estimated to have set somewhere between 13 and 14 world records. Sheridan won gold in shot put and discus. He set a world record in discus with a throw of 41.46 meters, beating silver medalist Nikolaos Georgiantis of Greece by nearly three and a half meters. Which is a lot. <laughs> it's a solid, like, ten... Not ten. Maybe At least like ten. 8% higher? Uh... No, my math is very bad. It's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. Uh, Werner Jarvinen of Finland took bronze. This was the first pentathlon of the modern Olympic Games, uh, though they called it the athletic pentathlon at the time. It was comprised of standing long jump, a staid race once around the stadium, approximately 190 meters, Greek-style discus throw, javelin throw, and Greco-Roman wrestling. Michael Sheridan was the heavy favorite. Unfortunately, he tore his legs with his spikes while training for the jumping events. He competed in the first event, standing long jump, but withdrew after coming in third. Tore his legs with his, so like torn ACL or like stabbed himself in the foot with cleats? I, I, I think it was like he ripped up his legs with his cleats. Uh, with Sheridan gone, it was anybody's game. Istvan Mudin, the quote giant Hungarian, led by one point after three events, but wasn't as good at the running and jumping. Eventually, this all shook out to Hjalmar Melander of Sweden winning gold as he was the most consistent across all events. He never placed higher than third, but also never finished lower than seventh. Muden took silver and Eric Lemming of Sweden took bronze. Hurdling. There was only one hurdling event, the 110 meters. It did, however, make for the best race of the 1906 games. Hugo Friend of the U.S. was the favorite after winning the 1905 AAU championship. Britain's top hurdler did not attend the games. The other American, Robert Levitt, was a college student with no titles to his name, but he made it to the finals, along with friend Alfred Healy of Great Britain, Vincent Dunker of Germany, and Henri Moligny of France. Friend had the best start, but lost the pace at the first hurdle. Levitt and Healy were then neck and neck the entire time. Healy had the lead, but Levitt just barely beat him for the gold at 16 and 1 fifth second. Dunker took bronze, just barely beating out Friend, who came in fourth. And Moligny was just happy to compete. <laughs> uh, because they didn't waste time on all those dumb hurdle races, they had plenty of time for everybody's favorite, speed walking. Uh, <laughs> I think it's fine. It's not a... Okay, it's a valid test of skill, and the skill is how well can you cheat at race walking. Yeah, I love it. I actually think it's and great. And it turns out... <laughs> And originally, they only planned to hold the 1,500-meter speedwalking event. George Bonhag, an American runner, decided to enter at the last minute because he was embarrassed by his poor showing in the five-mile race. Can I thought you were going to say he was embarrassed to be a speedwalker. Well, that's coming soon. Canadian <laughs> speedwalker Donald Linden decided to give him some tips, a choice he would come to rue bitterly, and Frank is going to read his account of why. Tip one, just walk, but, like, kind of quickly. <laughs> uh. I think... With speed, even. <laughs> this is uh, Bonhag? That's the pronunciation? Of this? Uh, I mean, that's how I was saying it. Uh, <laughs> They're all fake names. 
So we have uh, we have a quote here from Lyndon. Uh, Bonhag, an American runner, had been defeated in his five-mile race, so he looked around for some other event he might restore his prestige. He had never competed in a walking race in his life, but he approached me and said he was thinking of entering the 1,500-meter walk and asked for some advice. I knew it had taken me many years to become a champion, <laughs> and I didn't consider a newcomer would be a dangerous rival. So half jocularly and half seriously, I told him what shoes to wear, how to stride, what the rules were, <laughs> and I really encouraged did, him to I'm enter. Sorry. He did finger quotes around rules. <laughs> I feel like I... Mm. As I now recall, there were nine competitors, and the eager Bonhag went out in front right after the starter's gun. I trailed him a couple of yards where I could watch him closely, and we were well soon ahead of the others. However, it didn't take me long to learn that Bonhag was so determined to stay ahead that he began skipping, which is a form of running. I also noticed that the judges, most of whom were as green as Bonhag, were pointing to the Americans' feet and shaking their heads. Bonhag continued walking so illegally that no honest walker could ever have caught him, and he finished ahead of me by a couple of yards. I'm going to pause a bit before the next paragraph of this quote and just point out that this is what I've been saying. (laughs) (laughs) The way to win at speed walking is to run or skip, which is apparently a form of running. Uh, He goes on. That race was walked on Monday, and later I was told that the judges had conferred and had agreed that Bonhag had broken the rules. So they had ordered a rewalk to be held between Bonhag and myself at 9.30 Wednesday morning. At that hour, I was on the track and ready, and so was the crown prince of Greece, who was one of the judges. But Bong had never appeared, and neither did he give any explanation. No rewalk was held, and the original result went into the records. Of course, none of that's in the records now because and, it's not official. End quote. I just want to confirm, because it took me a little while to parse that when I first read it. The result where he had won by cheating, and it was agreed he had won by cheating, went in as a win for him yep. by cheating. Mm-hmm. So, I don't see... What is your problem with this? My problem is that race walking is not... <laughs> so, so wait, you it, cheat, and even if you don't get away with cheating, yeah. you still win. I love a sport where cheating you is You don't supported. even have to get away with cheating the, to win at race walking by cheating. The way we do the Olympics now is just everybody cheats but has to get away with it. I like blatant open cheating. I like it. I'm here for it. I support it. We should make doping legal, but only strychnine. Tell me. <laughs> tell me we how should many make drugs doping legal, on. but only in race walking. <laughs> but only poisons. Only active poisons. <laughs> like cognac. <laughs> it worked for the marathon runner in 1900, right? Yeah. Uh, Bonag was not the first to cross the finish line. That would be Robert Wilkinson of Great Britain, followed by Eugen Spiegler of Austria. However, both were disqualified on account of running. But but I am reliably informed that skipping is a form of running. Wait. However, the chief judge of the event was... The Crown Prince of Greece? James Sullivan. Oh, no! (laughs) Did he give the prize to someone with certain special shoes? He gave the prize to an American. Oh, that's shocking! Yeah, Robert Wilkinson of Great Britain and Eugene Spiegler of Austria got disqualified, but the American kept his gold medal. I'm not gonna lie, I just love open corruption. (laughs) I'm here for this. I support it. I support the sport. It's not a sport. Speedwalking is not a sport. It's a sport. It's not a sport. There were four judges in total. When Lyndon and the others alleged cheating, Sullivan and the other American judge voted in favor of Bonag, and the two non-American judges voted against him. The tie-breaking vote was then made by Prince Georgios, who voted in favor of Bonag, so his record stands. And then they had that 
race off that didn't happen. I don't understand how you can just not show up to the tie-breaking round and win. <laughs> By know. doing so. I mean, but like I fully support it. I Maybe feel like that's he just race walked through so quickly that they didn't realize he was Ooh. ever there. It's like a blur. I think he's an inspirational figure. <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't know why you're so upset about this. After the scandal of the 1500 meter speed walk, what they scandal? <laughs> they decided to hold a 3000 meter speed walk event. That's not helping. <laughs> it was scheduled for the morning of the last day of the Olympics. That sounds frankly exhausting. Shortly before the closing ceremonies. All oh, the, yeah. That's uh, going to be a good one. Just cap it off with the best event. All the athletes from the 1500 meter final were invited to compete. George Bonag and Donald Linden sat it out, but Robert Wilkinson and Eugene Spingler competed. They were neck and neck for most of the race until near the finish when they both broke into a run and were once again immediately disqualified. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Which means that Georgius Jantics of Hungary, who came in third, was the Olympic champion. Hermann Müller of Germany took silver and Georgios Saridakis of Greece slash Smyrna bronze. Sandor Barks, an Olympic historian, wrote about Xantics, quote, the Olympic champion was an office worker in the town hall of a small Hungarian town. After his success, the mayor of his town instructed him to act as the host and entertain all of the athletes of the Zapion. Along with the instructions, the money for this arrived by telegram, and the result was that the following day, two barrels full of Marsala wine were rolled into the quarters of the sportsmen. It was not very long before the shrill singing filled the tremendous hall, and the different nationalities were happily mixing. In an amazing disharmony, they sang together. It is recorded that around about midnight, the Hungarians and Austrians were kissing each other on the cheek, and in those times, as an Olympic feat, this certainly counted as a world record. <laughs> So hold on to those warm and fuzzy feelings, because we're about to get into the Irish protests, which ended up centering around the jumping events. Before we get into the thick of that, running down the others, Fernand Gonder of France was favored to win and won gold uh, of... I don't know which event this was. I didn't... Oh, this is pole vaulting. Okay, pole vaulting. Is that a jumping event? Yes. Uh, oh. Fernand Gonder of France was favored. And I'm sorry. Gold. I believe there was a rule that no mechanical assistance could be given to athletes in Olympic sports. And That's the pole not vault is oh, clearly God. a simple machine. <laughs> so are guns. Well, listen. So, like, <laughs> the gun is part of me. It's just who I am. That is an extension of myself. Uh, so is the pole. <laughs> Bruno Soderstrom of Sweden won silver and Edward Glover of the U.S. bronze. Soderstrom might have done better if his pole hadn't broken in half when he was attempting Gonder's winning jump of 3.5 meters. However, his was not the most spectacular pole breaking of the event. That dubious honor goes to Ed Archibald of Canada. This poor guy. Archibald was already an accomplished pole vaulter and would go on to win the 1908 AAA championship, which is like the, the British nationals um however in 1906 he was hampered by the loss of his pole the canadian athletes had taken a train from naples to athens and the train officials wouldn't let archibald carry the pole in the passenger's coach instead they secured it behind the engines where it was promptly chopped up and fed into the coal engine <laughs> fuel unfortunately by the time they got to athens the pole had disappeared <laughs> <laughs> so who knows uh, a greek official lent archibald a replacement pole but it broke and nearly impaled him he had been vaulting uh, 3.65 meters, nearly 12 feet, with his own pole, but never even approached that in Athens. Probably because he was af might have been afraid yeah, that he was going like, to get Yeah, oh, if this is going to kill me, yeah. I'll just not win the event. 
There were only two standing jump competitions this time, standing high jump and standing long jump. Ray Yuri run, won both with considerable ease. Remember, he's the one who had polio and then did the standing jumps. Uh, his only real competition being his own records. <laughs> Interestingly, there was a three-way tie for second place in standing high jump as Martin Sheridan and Lawson Robinson of the U.S. and Leon Dupont of Belgium all cleared 1.4 meters. Oh, we don't have the uh, fractions with decimals of fractions to no. like, differentiate at this granularity? No. Shame. So the Irish protest started brewing long before the actual jumping events. Uh, when Peter O'Connor, Con Leahy, and John Daly of Ireland arrived in Athens, they were surprised to discover that they had been listed in the program as British. I feel for them, but I don't know why they would have been surprised by this. Uh, O'Connor immediately wrote a letter of protest to the officials, and in a 1956 interview with the Limerick leader, he had he uh, recounted some of this, and Sarah's going to read some of what he said in that interview. So, let me see which one is uh, this. That's, that's long jump. No? I'm just making sure we have... Sorry. The longest jump. Yeah, here's the one where he's talking about the letter. So that's the one we want. Um, I have a copy of that letter making a strong protest and stating emphatically that we represented Ireland, that our expenses had been paid by Irishmen, and that we objected, if any were successful, to our wins being recorded in any way as points for England. My letter came before the Olympic Committee, but on a vote, the British scored a victory, the Greek delegates supporting the claim on the former that Ireland was then part of the United Kingdom. O'Connor also observed that the British judges resented the Irish attitude, adding that I was robbed deliberately in consequence through Matt Halpin, the American trainer acting as sole judge in measuring each competitor's jump. After Prince Georgios denied O'Connor's protest, he noted, I then found the two English judges who should have acted, but they curtly told me that owing to my letter repudiating England, they would not act. If my wife had not been present looking at the contest, which restrained me, I would have beaten help into a pulp, which is the coward's excuse. Beat, beat a man in front of your wife. That's, that's, so, that's the way things are done. Uh, American Meyer Prinstein was the one who uh, won that uh, long jump. I remember him from... He started in 1896. He was the one who punched Krausline. See? You gotta <laughs> punch. You gotta be willing to <laughs> take the punts. Exactly. Take the shot. Um, Prinstein posted what would be his gold medal mark in the first round, but which was also his last jump as he injured himself. Um, there was only one judge to witness this, as O'Connor mentioned, Matthew Halpin of the U.S., who assumed the role of official judge and measure. But there were, like, uh, like at least three other competitors who witnessed this as well. So, like, there weren't other officials, but none of the other competitors thought that there was anything uh, suspicious. Anyway, um, O'Connor was subsequently given a foul for falling backwards after he landed, which was a foul at the time. Con Leahy won gold in high jump. The most interesting story there is that the U.S. high jumper, Herbert Kerrigan, was injured when that wave hit the Barbarossa, the ship they were on, uh, but still managed, managed to tie for bronze with Themisto, Themistocles Diakides of Greece. Lajos Gonski of, Sil of Hungary took silver. The big fireworks came at the triple jump. O'Connor was getting a rematch against Prinstein and Con Leahy was there too. Due to his ankle injury, Prinstein didn't come close to his earlier gold medal success at the event and finished in 11th place. O'Connor and Leahy duked it out until O'Connor landed the best jump in the final round of 14.075 meters. Leahy's best jump was 13.98 meters and he took silver 
and Thomas Cronin of the U.S. took bronze with a jump of 13.7 meters. The real drama came during the medal ceremony, which Sarah has in the other excerpt. The limit, however, was reached when the officials hoisted on the Olympic masts the three flags indicating the nationality of the first, second, and third winners of the long jump, the British Union Jack being flown for my being second. I was an accomplished gymnast in my youth, and my active climbing of the post excited the spectators. At a height of about 20 feet, I unfurled my big green flag of Ireland and remained aloft for some considerable time, waving it vigorously. Con Leahy assisted in the demonstration by keeping fighting guard at the foot of the pole, meantime waving his green flag and defying every effort of the officials to prevent the demonstration, which caused a great sensation. So that that was the big drama. We're going to climb up with our own flag. Yeah, they climbed the flagpole at the medal ceremony and waved their flags. Well, well, one of them did, while the other one... And the other one was down there, like, fighting off everybody who right. tried to take the rope down. That's where the phrase, the fighting Irish, comes from. I do not believe that that is true. It's just 100% true. These are not they, real they took a picture of that guy, and then they... That's what it was, is the fisticuffs. Actually, that came from... Uh... Don't you dare well actually <laughs> me right now. No, it was... It's, it's a good story, though. It was when um, the... Notre Dame students rioted against the KKK. <laughs> also, took a picture of one of those guys. Yeah, uh, that's when the mascot got set as a fighting Irish. It's in a recent dollop episode. <laughs> anyway, but don't listen to that podcast. Listen to this podcast. We have the real history of that pose. Uh, yeah, just too many episodes of the dollop. The closing ceremonies. The closing ceremonies were held on May second, early in the afternoon. Medals were handed out along with an olive wreath from the Sacred Altus in Olympia. Matthew Halpin, U.S. team manager who narrowly missed uh, beating by O'Connor, apparently, uh, led the U.S. team in three cheers for the royal family of Greece. 6,000 school children gave a gymnastics demonstration. All participants were given a souvenir medal. I don't know if those were the children who got the souvenir medal or all the athletes who competed got participation medals. It sounds medals. like they gave all of the children little child medals. Yeah. But I'm... only the one um, Coxswain had a real medal, <laughs> the lord above the other children. Uh, King Georgios closed the games and then held a reception at the Zapion. At the reception, King Georgios gave a speech, thanking all the athletes who participated and expressing great hopes for their return in four years for the next intercalated games. Those games never happened. The tensions between Greece and Turkey... Yet. <laughs> the tensions between Greece and Turkey didn't stop until after World War One, and it wasn't just with Greece and Turkey. Other parts of the Ottoman Empire were declaring their independence and trying to break away, which was part of why Turkey kept going to war with Greece. This is all part of the conflict in the Balkans that led to World War One and shaped a lot of what happened to Europe in the 20th century. Due to Greece's war with Turkey over the Isle of Crete from 1907 to 1908, they weren't able to hold the 1910 intercalated games. Uh, I don't know with 1914, but 1918 was during World War I. Uh, the Olympic Games as a whole were canceled during World War I, and they were resumed again in 1920. And when they resumed again in 1920, there was no talk of any inter intercalated games in 1922 or any other time. The next time Greece made a bid for the Olympics was in 1940, then in 44, and in 52. They lost all of those bids to other cities. They didn't make another bid until the attempt to win the 1996 games, but lost those as well due to political unrest, economic trouble, and terrorist activity in the country in the late 80s. The decision to award the 1996 games were made in 1990. Despite all those problems, the Greek were still incredibly upset over having lost the Golden Olympics and accused Atlanta, an Atlanta-based Coca-Cola, of having stolen the games. What if, what if the 
Olympic Committee was trying to give the games to Greece, and they, they didn't realize that Athens and Georgia... That was the... Yeah, <laughs> There's an Athens, the wrong, Georgia. It's the wrong Athens. <laughs> it's a, it, was just a, it was just a mix-em-up. <laughs> there was even a possibility that Greece could boycott, which would have been problematic when it came to the torch lighting, which always starts at Olympia in Greece. If they had, it would have meant that Atlanta would not have had an Olympic flame. And therefore also have not been a real Olympics. Yeah. That's how it works. Lucky for Atlanta, they decided not to follow through with that boycott proposal. Finally, in 1997, the decision to have the 2004 Games in Athens was granted. 108 years after the last official Olympic Games in the city, and 98 years since the unofficial, unlicensed, unaffiliated with the IOC 1906 intercalated Games were These held These games are our spirit animal. <laughs> The intercalated games themselves, as well run as they were, did not make major news at the time. 1906 was a pretty volatile year in a lot of places, like literally and figuratively. Thing like jocks gather in Greece, yeah. not not a, not making the front page. No, well, they went through um, that volcano to get there, though. That's yeah, cool. Things that overshadowed the games included unrest in China, uh, Alice Roosevelt's marriage to Nicholas Longworth. The threat of strikes in mines and on railroads. A mine collapse in Courrier, France, in which 1,209 men died. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, American gunboats in Nanchang, Susan B. Anthony's death, and a number of earthquakes. One in Taiwan, in which 6,000 people died. Another in Chile, which killed 1,500 people. And the earthquake and subsequent four-day fire that destroyed San Francisco. You know... I thought this was the worst year, but it sounds like 1906. 1906 was rough. Oh, boy. And outside of that Pacific Rim uh, volatility in 1906, as I mentioned before, Mount Vesuvius was erupting. Um, Because why not at that point? Yeah, like, just want to get in on the the fun. So while the interclated games were overshadowed in their day and eliminated from the records by the IOC, they saved the Olympics. After the disasters of 1900 and 1904, it was the intercalated games that not only got the movement back on track, but also introduced the National Olympic teams that would be a major part of why the Olympics actually work at all today. Yeah, so the opening ceremonies, closing ceremonies, Olympic team, like, this game invented everything. The Olympic Village. Olympic Village. Yeah. This game invented everything and then was erased from history. Yeah. The true unsung hero. Yeah. The true history that you are learning on this, this podcast is, this and nowhere else. also invented decimal points on fractions. So Look, honestly, we will forgive. We will forgive that, and we will mostly forgive the race walking. No. <laughs> and the uh, the the medal ceremony protests. That's very good. <laughs> kind of just sounds like those guys got drunk and then they tried to cover for it by being like, "Yeah, it was a protest." Well, they were waving the flag. Did and it, they had, it had written the letter before that. It was a, All of that it was a long con. <laughs> yeah, a long con. All right. Um, the opening and closing ceremonies and other traditional things that were introduced at this time were also important. But establishing the ideal structure of the games as being just about two weeks with a clear opening and closing and all athletes being part of an official Olympic team is what saved the movement. Oh, my God. Which means, of course, that in 1908 they learned their lessons well and didn't repeat any of the dumb things that happened in Paris or St. Louis. I'm so glad to hear that because I was really worried that they were going to fuck it up again. Everything went up without a hitch, right? Why is that a question all of a sudden at the end? Because it didn't, but we'll get into that next time. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Bridget Natalie. We already did names. Yeah, I'm not doing my again. name again. We're finishing. This is Sarah and Frank. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing it. Follow us on Twitter. 
We have a Twitter. It's called Olympic Size Cast. And uh, it's Tumble us on Tumble. Yeah, well, I need to fix the URL on that. Oh, we have a Tumble? We do. Dig us on Instagram. <laughs> we don't have an Instagram. Snapchat us on... We don't have a Snapchat. Facebook. I'm out of, I'm out of <laughs> social media sites that I know. Right, but yeah, follow us. You know, do the like, rate, review thing on iTunes if you're into that. Help us out. Support us, support us on... Download us on Stitcher. Like, share, and subscribe. Pa- <laughs> Patreon. We don't have a Patreon. YouTube? We don't have a YouTube. Thanks for listening. We do have an, an uh, a Twitter, and you can find us at Olympic Size Cast on Twitter. Thanks. <laughs>